Hi, my name is Yasmin Terehi, and this is Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being, and spirituality. Today, we are talking about Krishnamurti and his teachings. For those of you who don't know him or his work, Krishnamurti was one of the greatest philosophers of the 20th century. Khalil Gibran considered him the manifestation of the God of love. George Bernard Shaw said he is the most beautiful person I have ever met. And today's episode is with Michael Cronin, who was born in Germany at the end of World War II. Growing up in post-war Germany disillusioned him in regard to social collective efforts. He studied world religions like Taoism, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, and more. And in 1966, he discovered the work of Jiddu Krishnamurti, which we'll call JK. It wasn't until early 1971 that he participated in a dialogue meeting of young people with Krishnamurti, JK, in Madras, now Chennai, in South India. He was completely fascinated and enamored by JK's philosophy and his personal experience and attended his public talks in India, Europe, and California for the next five years. Then in 1975, through the recommendation of some friends from Ojai, he assumed the position of chef at the school there, the newly founded Oak Grove School, even though he had never cooked before. And part of his duty as school cook turned out to be preparing luncheons for JK and his guests during the three-month period that JK stayed in Ojai, California. So he got to know JK in a personal, casual setting, and they became good friends. After JK's passing in February 1986, he started composing a memoir based on his times with the philosopher, and it was a labor of love and was published in 1995 under the title The Kitchen Chronicles, 1001 Lunches with Jiddu Krishnamurti. And Michael has also continued working for the Krishnamurti Foundation of America in various capacities, which is where we met in Ojai at the school. Uh, So for the past 20 years, he's actually been the librarian at the Krishnamurti Library in Ojai. So welcome to the show, Michael. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. So, Michael, can you kick it off and tell us about Krishnamurti, who he is, for those who don't know him? All right. So, um, uh, Jiddu Krishnamurti was born in 1895 in central South India in a a town called Madanapala in Andhra Pradesh. And uh, some years later, his father was a theosophist, and at that time, and even now, the Theosophical Society is headquartered in a city on the east coast of South India called Madras. Now it's called Chennai. At the time, it was called Madras. And there it was that Krishnamurti, age 14, 15, was discovered by a clairvoyant theosophist and determined to be the next world teacher. And so uh, his mother had died some years earlier, and so the head of the Theosophical Society, her name was Annie Besant, she adopted Krishnamurti and his younger brother, Nityananda, they were inseparable, She adopted both of them, and Krishnamurti and his brother were taken to England, to London, and this is pre-World War I, so they're talking about 
1910 and 11, and he was uh, prepared for his new role as uh, as world teacher, meaning he was uh, taught English, he was taught uh, English manners of eating, behavior, clothing, etc. And uh, so he assumed that role, and they made him the head of a subdivision of the Theosophical Society called the Order of the Star. And the Order of the Star had uh, chapters of uh, followers, usually in the numbers of thousands, in many different countries all over the world. And Krishnamurti and his brother, they traveled from one place to another and held, uh, 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 what, what would you call it, meetings, uh, gatherings, and uh, and so this went on for quite some time until in about 1922, the brother at one of the meetings in Australia became ill with tuberculosis. Because of the illness, they went not uh, via India back to Europe, but uh, went to California, where uh, the place where they uh, went to was recommended as a good place for people suffering with tuberculosis, the brother's illness. So they came to Ojai, which is about 60 miles from Los Angeles, and they stayed in this small town, which is surrounded by mountains and is about uh, a thousand feet high. And uh, and they, uh, it was good for the brother to be there. It, it improved his uh, situation. But even so, he died a few years later in 1925 at the age of 27, which was a great shock for Krishnamurti. And he continued, Krishnamurti continued his role Defined by the Theosophical Society, but he had become very skeptical about a lot of different aspects of the society. And in 1929, at a meeting in Holland, which was the headquarters of the Theosophical Societies, the town called Omen in Holland, uh, he dissolved the Order of the Star organization that he was the head of and divorced himself from the Theosophical Society under the the heading of this talk was called Truth is a Pathless Land, meaning there is no path to truth. And uh, that was one of his uh, key observations and suggestions to people at large. It became the essence of his talks because he continued and talking all over the world, but independently. Yeah. So Michael, I, I want to highlight that because I think the thing that is so interesting about Christian Murray, I mean, there's so many things, but he was so much in a league of his own in a sense that he didn't follow any dogma and 
he refused to play the role of a guru and he kind of refused to give any kind of method or process. And so can you say more about this point? Because obviously I think, you know, his upbringing um, perhaps deterred him from wanting to create some sort of methodology that people could follow, right? Like walking away from order of the star and then kind of yeah. carving his own path. Can you, can you talk to us about that? Cause I, I think that part to me is so unique and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I vaguely remember researching uh, online that when people try to turn him into a mystic, you know, he was almost like oblivious and, and almost didn't like that at all. Um, yeah. so can you, yeah, speak more about that? Yeah, well, one of his uh, observations was that all religions of the world uh, claimed to have the truth, to own the truth, to formulate and pass on the truth. His discovery was, which he conveyed, that truth is a living thing, and only each individual human being by him or herself, can discover this truth for him or herself, but through observation and through what he called choiceless awareness, which means to be aware of all the conscious activity that goes on in one's mind, how one likes and dislikes, judges and condemns, and so on. And the whole point of it was to note and be aware of the fact that we as human beings, wherever we grow up, we are what he called conditioned, meaning programmed. From early on as children, we are told this is right, this is wrong, this is good behavior, bad behavior. And we base our our life and uh, actions on these early uh, conditioning uh, factors. And he questions all of that and encourages us to be aware of this conditioning without judging it. That's the important part. You know, usually we say, oh, I'm angry. Oh, I must not be angry. You know, and then one tries to get rid of anger. But he says, no, don't condemn anger. Look at anger. Look at, uh, see where it comes from. Why, why do you become angry about something? And the same about uh, other factors which are important in our lives, like fear and violence and pleasure and so on, to just be aware of these factors that determine our life and see them for how, uh, what they are, how they arise, and so on. And also how, because of these different factors, how we belong to a religion, how we belong to a nation, a nationality, and how we are uh, uh, Sort of, we are attached to our background, and to to be aware of that may make it clear that this is a false adjustment, a false attachment. 
Yeah. I mean, that's so powerful. And he talks a lot about a mind that is free, free from conditioning. And, you know, to be honest, when I was diving into some of his books and really considering that point, I think what what has been hard for me is to really integrate that mindset into my day-to-day life. You know, I can think about it for a period of time, but then I sort of fall back into older conditioning, right? And I think it's it's really difficult when we're so integrated into society. So what do you think, and maybe base it on what you've experienced with uh, Krishnamurti, like what do you think is the antidote for having a mind that's free from conditioning? I mean, how do you and your peers and others um, create that environment? Well, uh, you see, that's the, you see, this is really the difficulty and the uniqueness, as you already pointed out, is Krishnamurti did not offer a method. No. He felt that a method or even a kind of a goal to be free from this or that may be hindering to be free in a very basic sense. You know. That that to that to be free in, in the most basic sense requires clear observation and understanding of how the mind functions, the human mind functions, and how we how our life is determined by the by our values. Because you know our our religion, our cultural setting determines our values. So so to 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 be aware of that, to see that for what it is. Uh, is uh, is essential without judging it or trying to get rid of it. You see that 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 is the difficulty of what Krishnamurti is talking about. That he does not offer a method, and he and as you also point out, uh, is he, uh, in his talks he encourages people to question what he says to. Uh, to question meaning not to totally accept it as a dogma, but to look at it uh, without judgment, without, uh, you know, I mean, if I tell you something very factual, you know, oh, today is a nice day, the sun is shining. Well, you can you can look around and you see, yeah, that's true. You know, in the same way, what he is pointing out, if one looks looks at that, carefully observes it, one sees, oh, yeah, that's true. And so and so it's a very subtle thing. And also it is completely dependent on the individual's attitude and activity. And it's and it's and there's no end to it. It's being aware of oneself and one's actions and reactions at all times. So, Michael, then I want to dig deeper on this because then would you argue or would you say that the goal then is to be free? Um, and, and I'm wondering, like, is that the highest goal for all of us or is it to be happy? I know that there's a, a lot of other folks who believe we, you know, we, we exist to, you know, to, to pursue things to make us happy. But, um, you know, based on Krishnamurti's work, it feels like the most important thing is to be free. Um, and so maybe the, the, the next best question is, what do you think 
Krishnamurti thought the meaning of life is about. Well, that's exactly it. As you mentioned, Yasmin is, uh, you know, to be free. But here, here comes the big thing. We, uh, it's not that we become free. We are free from the first moment of our lives. But then, then we we uh, surrender to um, to conditioning, you know, to uh, to being. Then we create uh, this structure through memory and knowledge of ourselves. You know, we say, you know, I am that. I had that experience. I studied this and all that. You know, so that that becomes myself and the whole point of the you see he questions the validity of the self you know that that the construction of the self is a mental activity and so uh, and so there's always uh what would you say there's always a distortion in there you know Invariably, and to see that, to see this, you know, and and of course, uh, as as one grows up, the self becomes stronger and more pronounced, and uh, it becomes an in, uh, incredibly important factor in one's life, you know, and so, uh, but with it comes all kinds of. Uh, difficulties, problems, distortions, and conflict. You know, it's it's loaded with conflict. You see, and that's the difficulty to see that that the self, the me, is the cause of conflict and fear and anxiety. I don't know if that if that makes sense or not. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it makes sense. It makes sense that you know we're the creators of of the self, essentially, right? Which, yeah. which is the personalization, uh, subjectivity of our experience, which creates a lot of the pain and suffering, right? Because there's all yeah. these conditions. Um, I, you know, I I think reading some of this work, it's so liberating for me because if you actually zoom out you know, and you become this awareness and observe, then you can detach yourself from your construct. Yeah. Um, but there's there's such a tension there for me, like in terms of the fear that I feel when I when I detach myself from my life, then, you know, it, it, it sort of feels like, I mean, nihilism is a really strong word. So it's not quite nihilism, but it just feels like meaningless, <laughs> you know, yeah. there's a sense yeah. of meaninglessness. Yeah. 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 So how do you deal with that? Like, how do you kind of detach yourself without losing meaning? Well, you or maybe see, you can't. No, <laughs> I mean, uh, no, I mean, but life has its own meaning, its own beauty, its own, uh you know its own value uh and and we and the self uh the self sort of denies that in many respects you know what i mean uh because the value you know it, uh, the self and the me value uh, states oh i'm the most important person in the universe you know, and and so 
so the value system is formed on that basis, and that's where the distortion and the difficulty comes in. You know that 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 uh, uh, that. Uh, that I adhere to that, and and in a very basic and and you see that one has to keep in mind there are two uh, sort of areas that one keeps that that operate. You know, one is a very functional area to be to survive. You know, you need food, you need shelter, you need all these things, but then. Uh, and that's a form of security, of course, you know. And but uh, uh, then the, the psychological security is another thing altogether, you know. One wonders: is there such a thing as a psychological secu- security? Because psychological security refers to the me, the self, you know? and 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 I want to be. Safe. I want to be uh, uh, um, totally secure, and of course, there's no such thing. You know, we are we, we are born and we die, and that's you know that's the very basic fact of human life is that, and we cannot escape from that. Even though you know, I mean, in 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 most societies, death is. Uh, is a horrible thing, you know. We we and and of course, you know, we lose a loved one, and that hurts. You know, there's pain in that, and so on. But on the other hand, that's how the how life is. You know, everything has a beginning and an ending, and so to see that clearly uh, is uh, is liberating. You see, and not to struggle against it. Right, right, yeah, right. I, I think, yeah, especially in the West, we sort of uh, abhor any kind of ending. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. And so, and so, that's uh, that's such a big factor in our daily living, and uh, but to see clearly. Uh, the pattern of life and uh, uh, in all in all areas is something uh, in a way very liberating and beautiful. Mm, yeah, yeah. So, Michael, I want to talk about. Uh, obviously, you've read probably all of Krishnamurti's books, which there's quite a few. Yeah, <laughs> um, and <laughs> yeah, because I think I think we met at the library uh, in Ojai, and um, there's just kind of like wall to wall bookcase. Oh of boy, yeah, all, all the different. Yeah. <laughs> so I yeah, I'd love to get a sense from you which book is, or maybe series of books, couple of books. Uh, has made the most impact on you, and why? Uh-huh. Well, uh, now you have to keep in mind, I I studied the various religions and uh, Taoism and Buddhism. They influenced me and impressed me very much. And, um, and then to come upon Krishnamurti, who... Uh, who really sets the human being free. And even, you know, just to give you an example, uh, you know, meditation. Meditation is very important and big 
in uh, you know in all the religions of some sort, you know, and uh, it's uh, it's uh, it's something, and he defines meditation as something very very extraordinary that it is not an intellectual uh, affair, but uh, he says. When the heart enters the mind, the mind has quite a different quality. It is really then limitless, not only in its capacity to think, to act efficiently, but also in its sense of living in a vast space where you are part of everything. Meditation is the movement of love. This is this is what uh, what. Uh, uh, what he suggests, and which one, I guess, uh, can experience, you know. Anyway, so there is a book, uh, just when I uh, discovered Krishnamurti, or first met him, it was just briefly before, there was a book that had just come out, and it's still available, it's called The Only Revolution. And it's a book that I read while I was in Almora in uh, in India near the Himalayas. I was staying there, and uh, and the book impressed me profoundly. And then not long after that, I met him, and and there was you see that was the uh, the extraordinary thing of meeting Krishnamurti, and that's hard to convey nowadays. I mean, after all. He died 36 years ago. You know, that's quite a while. He's not alive as a human being anymore, you know. But at that time, when he was alive and he entered the room, here there were 30, 40 young people squatting on the ground, and he entered the room very quietly, almost shyly, and walked to the corner where there was a pillow and a microphone, and he sat down. And he didn't say anything immediately. He just sort of looked at everybody, smiled and nodded a little bit, and then very gently asked, what shall we talk about? You know, And then uh, various people had uh, various questions, you know, and, and uh, he took all of that into account, and, and a conversation ensued, you know. But the thing was, there was a... a a special emanation of his uh, of his presence. It was very subtle, you know, and it wasn't uh, the a powerful. You know how uh, sometimes a, a person who has accomplished something or who's famous and has a big position as a president or you know any of that. Uh, it, it wasn't like that. It was very, very, very subtle. And for me personally, it manifested, and I and I still think of it that way. It was like a window had been opened in my mind, and suddenly I saw an infinite space of freedom, an infinite space of freedom there that we that we inhabit as human beings and that that we are part of, and yet we. We don't see it most of the time, you know, but it's there. We are born free as free human beings, 
And then, of course, all the patterns and experiences, all of that conditions us and narrows us down more and more, you know. And so anyways, so, so, uh, but there was something unspoken and very subtle, and I would call it love, a feeling of great love and compassion that communicated itself simply through the person. And, and, and that was definitely uh, a permanent feature of this man that, that, that was so extraordinary. And he, and he never sort of emphasized it and said, oh, look at me, I'm full of love or something. No, that was not the way. It, it, it was just a simple, subtle fact. As a flower, you know, you look at a flower and, and you see the beauty of the flower and, you know, and it's just alive. And then eventually, well, eventually the flower withers away, you know. And Krishnamurti, well, he flowered for a long time and very slowly, too, you see. So, yeah, so Michael, um, I, I want to ask, uh, since you were the chef, I know this is maybe a little bit frivolous and silly, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm, cur- I'm curious, what what was his uh, kind of favorite dish? What did he like to eat? <laughs> well, he was, you know, he came from a Brahmin family, and Brahmins, uh, the highest class in ancient Indian t- tradition, they they were always uh, very strict vegetarians, so they never ate meat or fish or anything like that. And and he he was raised that way, so he was actually a lifelong vegetarian. So the food that I prepared was vegetarian food, but he was not uh, sort of uh, nowadays. Uh, a lot of vegetarians become what they call vegans, which means they they don't eat any eggs or milk or cheese or honey or so, anything that has anything to do with an animal. Well, he did eat eggs and milk and cheese and so on. But he was very, uh, very uh, aware of what he ate. And so he didn't like very rich food. You know, he, as I said, he 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 ate cheese and so on, and but not too much butter or uh, you know too much cheese or eggs and so on, just in small amounts. And the one thing that he was very careful of, which was interesting for me, was that he didn't like what we call stimulants like coffee or black tea. You know, he didn't consume those. And on one occasion. I uh, I had prepared some uh, what we call brownies, you know, chocolate uh, uh, <laughs> cookies, and uh, and and he 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 looked at it and he asked me, "What is this, sir?" And I said, "Oh, uh, uh, Christian, those are uh, chocolate brownies." And he said, "Oh, no, I won't eat those." And I was really surprised. <laughs> And I thought, wow, Christmasy, but and he liked sweet things, you know, he liked sweet desserts and all that, ice cream and so on. But he said, Oh no, I I won't eat that. And I said, Why, Christmas, do you like sweet things? No, he said, 
no, chocolate is a stimulant, and I won't consume stimulants. And and it's true. I looked it up, and chocolate is is a stimulant like coffee and so on, you know. And so, but apropos, um, well, he 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 ate vegetarian dishes. He liked most of what I cooked. And but on one occasion, just uh, I mean, he seldom really said, "Oh, this is wonderful." Or he never expressed, uh, or seldom expressed direct criticism like that, or uh, <laughs> or, or outright uh, uh, delight of you know in something. But on one occasion, uh, he stayed for some years with Mary Symbolist in Malibu at her house. She hosted him. She was his manager and secretary, and uh, but she was gone for some days, and so he said, "Oh, can you make me that soup that you made yesterday?" And it's called seven bean soup, <laughs> and and it <laughs> and it's a soup that uh, consisted of seven different seven different types of beans. They were all cooked together. With vegetables, you know, carrots and bell peppers and onions and so on, and made it into a very delicious soup. And he said, "Can you make some of those for me so I can take them home?" And I said, "Okay, sir." So I made him a couple <laughs> gallons of that soup, and he took wow. it with him, and he <laughs> and he ate that for the next few days. Uh, and then then I asked him afterwards. I said, uh, "How did it go with this?" Oh, he said, oh, d- wonderful, but I still have a gallon jar full. <laughs> oh, wow. That's amazing. <laughs> wow. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. It's um, it's nice to know the human uh, J- JK as opposed to the philosopher JK, right? Because you know, at the end of the day, we're all human. Um, so, Michael, I wanted exactly. to... Exactly. Yeah, I-, I wanted to ask... Uh, about there's a couple of things that he said in um I think his books or maybe discourses that have stayed with me and one uh, quote in particular is it is no measure of health to be well adjusted to a profoundly sick society and you know in his life he saw so much right world war 1 world yeah. war 2 yeah right and and I'm I'm curious you know what was his perspective obviously you know the de- deconditioning of a mind is was was his uh, philosophy, um, w- which spoke to a lot of you know concepts and of nationalism, right? And and holding on to yeah. these like personalized um, you know ideas of who we are as a race. But but yeah, I'm, I'm curious. You know what was his perspective on on the world and and like where did he think humanity was going to go? Well, that was really one of his concern, concerns. He traveled the whole world, and he, you know, he directly experienced and observed the, the the functions and operations of the various cultures and countries that he visited. And clearly, each culture had its own shortcomings. You know, I mean, each culture fosters values. You know, and 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 each country has engaged in wars, you know, and so on, in violence and so on. All of these things were abhorrent to him. He felt that 
to kill another human being was the worst sin, the worst thing one could do, you know. And uh, so, so he was very uh, skeptical about the various societies, uh, even you know, even though well he lived among them, you know, and and and, but he felt what he what you they just quoted. The, that to be adjusted to a sick society, you know, with with all these difficulties, the crime, the competition, the 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 ruthlessness, you know, when everybody tries to be the number one, and regardless of all the others, you see, the, that's the thing that disturbed them, and that was one thing that was rooted in the sense of me and self. And that's what he addressed. You know, can one, can we create as human beings a society where there is no competition, no comparison, no endeavor, no crime, no violence and all that. And, you know, and a society that doesn't go in a, to, to war with another one for some reason or other, you know, uh, for territorial gain or, uh, some ideological reason. So, so that was one of his prime concerns uh, overall. You know? And, uh, and, and, and I mean, he, he stated what I was just saying. Uh, he stated this very much in that talk that he gave when he disbanded the Order of the Star in 1929. And uh, you know he he said uh, at the at the end he said my only concern is to set human beings absolutely free, you know, and uh, well and that was his endeavor you know throughout his life he traveled all over he gave talks and uh, you know he never uh, really adored money even though you know it's a funny thing. He uh, he didn't uh, concern himself with money, and yet he didn't have any money. He was dependent on donors, you know, people supporting his work through donations, you know. And and we are still in that same in that same uh, league, as it were, because now let's take the Krishnamurti Foundation of America uh, that runs the school and the and 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 the center here. And the library, well, you know, we are all non-profit organizations, and we try to survive and make do by through donations, you know, through support from people that are interested in the same uh, in the same thing to make Krishnamurti's work uh, available, and uh, you know, to support that, yeah. Mm, yeah, amazing. And we'll include a link at the end of the show uh, for folks who do want to donate. Uh, so, Michael, what has surprised you the most on your journey? And if you can answer that, I know it's difficult to answer for, for JK, but if you could maybe tell us what you think surprised him the most uh, on his journey. Uh, I can't really speak for him in that sense, you know, because 
he he in a certain sense and an apropos book i want to add this this book it's a diary that he written in the 1960s it's called krishna mori's notebook and it's a very personal type book where he really recorded his uh, observations and his state of mind and sometimes this very powerful experience of love that he had and and it was all uh, and ultimately it was <laughs> he always that was a kind of contradiction he said it's beyond words and yet he was writing about it you know <laughs> so uh, but even so uh, some of it uh, is being conveyed and and i think that was for him was that you know to 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 have a good relationship with people which didn't always work you know he was a human being he made mistakes and sometimes uh, some some people that mad at him or uh, criticized or judged him you know that was not uh, uh, uncommon at all but uh, if you got to know him just on a very personal level you could see what a lovely man he was and the thing that impressed me most uh, and in in a way it's true it, it really impressed me that he had a wonderful sense of humor and he he told he liked to tell jokes so at the lunch table uh, it wasn't uncommon that he told a joke that he had just heard and and often they were very funny and about heaven and hell and whatnot, you know. It was, uh, <laughs> I mean, it was an unusual type of uh, 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 jokes, you know, that that he uh, that, that he liked to tell. And and actually, that caused me, in a way, to write my book because a lot of people, you know, when they only saw a video of him giving a talk. Uh, often they they felt he was very and he was he was very severe and austere and said why haven't you changed and so on you know and and people uh, I mean and but sometimes during uh, his public talks he would also tell jokes sometimes you know and uh, and and they were kind of funny you know he had a, as I said he had a wonderful sense of humor. And during one interview uh, w- with a British television company, uh, they asked him about, he, he often emphasized seriousness, what he called seriousness. And the man asked, what, what is seriousness, sir? And he says, well, seriousness is going to the end of what you are doing, you know, what you are inquiring your task and so on to completing these things that you have started going to the end that's seriousness but and then he he included this and that i like very much he said but seriousness includes humor the capacity to laugh at yourself about your own your own endeavors and things you know and uh, <laughs> and that was and that was really true, you know. He 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 did laugh about uh, you know. I remember at one 
on one occasion at the lunch table, we were sitting together and we were talking about uh, the foundations and whatnot. Uh, and and he was he started laughing, and I said, "Christian, uh, what's what's so funny?" And he said, "Oh, just this whole circus about this man, meaning himself." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that is so. That's amazing. To I could see it in him and in, in some of the, the discourses and conversations that he's got a very lighthearted, yeah. playful sense of self, which like to uh-huh. me you know, is, is, is powerful, right? Cause, um, yeah. I think it is a big cosmic joke, you know, Indeed. what we're doing yeah. here. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. And, and I mean, and I mean, I, I see that in myself, you know, I mean, the things that I do sometimes and, and I like this and I like that. And, and uh, sometimes it's all kind of ironic and contradictory and silly, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and, or for example, here, here's another thing that a lot of people, when I discovered that I was really surprised, you know, and, and, uh, somebody told me before I ever met him on a very personal level and they said, Oh, he likes movies. He goes to the movies, you know, and, I, and it turned out, yes, he liked Western, you know, and Clint Eastwood was one of his favorite actors. And then at one point, a lady uh, 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 mentioned to him at the lunch table and said, but Krishnaji, they shoot each other and there's blood all over. And he said, yeah, but it's, they're not really shooting each other. And the blood is just some ketchup. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. So yeah, yeah. he's not uh, doc- he's not so, so strict about um, about uh, everything, right? No, he was not dogmatic. Actually, here let me add another thing, Yasmin, because this was a a very very common uh, theme. Because uh, you know he was very uh, interested in a different type of education, where the teacher and the student had an affectionate relationship of trust. And it wasn't just, the teacher wasn't just an authority, you know. Uh, So he emphasized that as important in the educational pattern, you know. And uh, and so uh, he uh, he wanted the teacher to, to have a feeling for this young person that just grew up, you know. And uh, and not to uh, to assert any kind of uh, you know power over that person, but of course, uh, so so he recommended that at the school in which he started there in Ohio, the Oak Grove School in 1975, uh, and uh, he said, yeah, we should all be vegetarian. You know? So that 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 became a topic, you know. But then at one point, I remember there was a discussion about that. And he said, look, I'm not, a ve- I'm not advocating ad- vegetarianism. I don't, I don't advocate any ism, you know. I'm not dogmatic. Mm-hmm. And, and then he gave an example, which was kind of uh, thought-provoking. He said, look, if you are an Eskimo and you live up in the Arctic, Arctic North, and you have no vegetables, well, 
what are you going to do? You have to hunt the seal or the fish and eat those. Or if you're a bushman in the Kalahari Desert, what are you going to eat? You have to run after the antelope and kill the, and eat the antelope, you know. So, so he wasn't dogmatic in that sense either. You see what I mean? And, uh, right, right, yeah. Yeah. And He's uh, practical. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, uh, he, he had a very uh, direct, practical approach to life, you know, and, and that was very, very strong and powerful. So, Michael, um, we are uh, almost at time, yeah. uh, but I wanted to ask one more question. And what do you want to tell our listeners about Krishnamurti, about the work of Krishnamurti, perhaps why you found it so interesting all these years, enough to spend so much of your life, you know, caretaking uh, the center and um, running the, libra- the library, right? So what do you want to tell our listeners about that? Well, uh, again, the thing that impressed me most and stayed with me throughout this, and and uh, and I think it it became sort of very important. And he expressed that, Krishnamurti expressed that, when he said, nobody can give you the truth. Nobody. And he included himself. You know, he said, I can't give you the truth. You have to find the truth for yourself, you know, in your own life, in your own mind, in your own thinking, and so on. And now that was one way of expressing it. Then he had another very poetical way of expressing it. He said, you have to be a light unto yourself. You have to be a light unto yourself. And that light is the law. No no other person or agency or religion can give you that 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 light, you know. But of course, then he he specified, he you know, he said, Well, of course you have to obey the, the 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 laws of the land and you have to obey the policeman, you know, and all that. But he's not talking about that. He's talking about that ultimate perception of the of the mind of the human being you know that that there you have to be alive unto yourself you know to be able to observe and see things clearly without judgment without condemning or you know or giving or forming a dogma mm, yeah yeah fascinating michael this was so lovely. Are there any resources that you can point folks to in order to stay in touch with you and or learn more about the um, Ojai Center? Is there a link? Yeah, there, there's very well. First of all, the uh, the foundations there, worldwide there are four international foundations. The one in India, KFI. And the one in uh, in England, which is sort of European, I guess, is called KFT, Krishnamurti Foundation Trust. And they, in India, they have uh, five, six schools. In England, they have one center and school called Broadwood Park. And then uh, here in America, the KFA, Krishnamurti Foundation of America, 
uh, operates and runs one school, the Oak Grove School, which now has expanded and it goes from kindergarten. It's an accredited school, private, not cheap, unfortunately, but it goes from kindergarten all the way through high school. It has over 200 students, which for a school of that uh, size and quality is is good, you know. And uh, and so the uh, the uh, the resources are the website, of course, which is kfa dot org dot org, you know. And that's where you can get all the information about Krishnamurti, his books, uh, the school, etc. You know, and then of course there's the actual center, which is now the library where I work, and that is in the house where Krishnamurti used to live when he came to America to California and Ohio. That's where he lived, and that's where he passed away 36 years ago. You know. And uh, and and that is has certain opening hours, which sometimes change a bit, you know. And we are open uh, except Mondays. We are open all day, ten thirty to two thirty, and on the weekends uh, and holidays, it's from ten to five. And uh, and people can come, and uh, you know, you don't have to make a reservation for that. You just come and 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 have a look around and. We sell the books, and there are the books. And then there's also a great new resource, which is YouTube. You go to YouTube on on the on the computer, and you see uh, Jay Krishnamurti, and there are uh, dozens, or maybe even hundred or two hundred uh, uh, video recordings of all of his talks. Yes, yes, and I have watched many of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh thank you yeah. so much Michael. Thank you so much and uh I can also attest to the fact that the Christian Murdy Center in Ojai is spectacular. There's also beautiful tours that you can take and the outdoor area um where there's a, a garden and all these different plants. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's just, I mean, it feels like from another space and time. It's so beautiful. Yeah. So I've been there twice now. Yeah. Well, Well, Michael, thank you so much. Go ahead. (laughs) I know I was going to thank you and say it's been a pleasure talking with you. I hope, uh, I wish we had more time and I could tell you many more stories. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. Likewise, we'll have to talk again and uh, dive deeper into some of his other works because, yeah, I think that it it could probably take years. That's very special. We can have a joke uh, session (laughs) when I tell you a lot of the jokes and stories that Krishnamurti told. (laughs) But it's a little touchy because it involves heaven and hell, God and the devil. And so on. <laughs> Amazing. And so not everybody might be susceptible to that. Maybe that could be the next book that you write, Michael. <laughs> the, the, joke, <laughs> the jokes of Krishnamurti. <laughs> well, they're already in my book, you know, so yeah. <laughs> oh, amazing. <laughs> but thank you, Yasmin. A pleasure talking with you. Yeah. And thank you for inviting me. 
for our audience. Thanks for joining and for listening. In this episode, we learned about the life of Krishnamurti through the lens of Michael Cronin. You can tune in to Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being, and spirituality. Thanks again.